Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of the podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host with Karen. Okay, guys. Uh, so this is, I think, again, we agreed short and sweet would be the, 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 <laughs> the plan for the day. Uh, in any case, um, we are on another week of pulmonology, which is always fun. Uh, it's actually not that bad, being honest. As far as the rotation scale, it could be a lot worse. Um, yeah, so exciting week two of pulmonology. We are waiting for baby to arrive at any point. And... I think your mother is coming tomorrow, so that yes. should be fun. I think the kids are excited. Um, so, all in all, uh, just kind of enjoying the time, I guess, it as, as it is. Uh, pulmonology is nice in the sense I don't have to come into work until like 8.30. Uh, we only have like maybe, we, we see, I think, a total of like, we've seen up to like seven, eight patients in a day. But um, generally speaking, I've only had to write notes for like two to three patients. Um, so relatively relaxing rotation, uh, some frustrations here and there when a patient yells at you. Um, that's always fun. <laughs> that's new. Um, I didn't hear the story. Oh, I, I think I told you about this. I, I, uh, I thought that was they were family. frustrated with the progress or lack thereof of their loved one. And so they were letting us know how they felt about that and, Obviously, we were the consulting service, so we just kind of like took it for a good 30 minutes and then <laughs> did our best to help them as, you know, what we could. And then, yeah, so that wasn't today. It was a couple no, of days ago. No, th- that um, was family that yelled at you, not the patient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think as a, like we've talked a little bit about the pros and cons of consulting service and then definitely we would like to highlight like some of the cons of being... Uh, being consulted for things that really don't concern you or really not much that you can add to the the current plan. I think sometimes it's just kind of covering your butt by the primary team, and I understand that as well. But we've had definitely a few where it's like, hey, pleural fusion, heart failure, what do you, any recommendations? And it's like, continue doing what you've been doing. Um, it seems like as a rule of thumb with like thoracentesis, uh, there's only... Um, Indications really are like patients short of breath, um, it's causing respiratory distress in some way, some, having some major effect, or like the patient, it's there's concern for malignancy or something like that, and then you'd want to just tap for a diagnostic. Um, again, this is kind of my brief understanding of <laughs> when thoracentesis should be done. Um, so when you think the patient's respiratory status would be improved, and then if you think that the pleural uh, fusion, uh, the fluid that you're seeing in the lungs is caused by a, a different source other than like pneumonia or something like that. Um, so I think those are generally the general rule of thumb. You know, we can tap it for those reasons. Uh, this is probably other indications, of course. But and then of course when you we've had a few where we would go and go into the room, bring the ultrasound with us, and we kind of look at the lung windows and um, try to. F- see what might be tappable um 
because uh, sometimes even though there's fluid there pushing uh, in the in the pleura pushing along down and collapsing it sometimes you do still have like a bit of lung that is kind of hanging out pretty close to where you would want to go in and you obviously do not want to stab the lung with a needle um, so you want to find good windows where you can actually access the fluid uh, without damaging any surrounding tissues um, there's always of course always a risk for um, pneumothorax, hemothorax, and other issues when you do put a needle into the pleural area. So there's always risks, and so you have to try to weigh the risk and benefits and make sure the patients are aware of it. And generally speaking, it's not the hardest thing, not the most difficult um, procedure to do, and usually the risks aren't like that extravagant. It's not like one out of three or anything like that. It just it can happen. And um, I think we might be able to do one tomorrow. I've watched um, my other co-resident do a thoracentesis. Um, and I watched actually one of the ICU residents today do a thoracentesis while we were waiting for Dr. Locklear to give us uh, some more instructions. But uh, we ended up watching a thoracentesis. And so it was nice to kind of see the varying, um, I don't want to say this badly, but skill levels is probably the word I would use is, so like the co-resident I currently have has a lot of experience. So he kind of is pretty fast and efficient. And the one we watched today, it wasn't bad. Uh, I'm sure he's better than I would be, but it wasn't as smooth as uh, I had seen before. So in any case, um, interesting to watch. Um, it you know, is basically thoracentesis, uh, bronchoscopies, uh, the general tools in the pulmonology tool belt. As I'm sure other things as well as like trilogy and other things like that. But um, a lot of our consults lately have not been all that complicated. Oftentimes it's just knowing when to say we're not going to do anything. Um, and then write a nice note saying that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously you don't want to ridicule any. Sometimes you are, are involving pulmonology just to make sure we're on the same boat. And then... I am definitely learning a lot more about uh, um, tracheostomies, um, which I knew next to nothing uh, about when I was in medical school. I think it was talked about very briefly when I was on an ICU rotation, but I never really paid much thought to it. And now I'm seeing quite a few thoracotomies, uh, uh, tracheostomies, sorry, tracheostomies. I'm seeing quite a few tracheostomies. And um, it's helpful to know what you're actually doing, especially since like you will manage these patients on the floor, and you just you actually probably should know the progression of and when they can be downsized on sizes of trache tracheostomies versus when they will be on that forever, and then trying to talk to the family about that because that's obviously can be uh, obstacles to. Patients going home, it can be obstacles of patients being placement in different facilities. So all sorts of fun things um, regarding that anyway. So, yeah. Well, and I, I guess there's devices that help them speak when they have a trach in. And yeah, and there's some pros and cons of those. Like obviously if you have a, I think it's called a passive valve um, in some of these trachs. Uh, the passive valve is kind of a mesh. It's kind of like if you put like a paper towel over your mouth. You can still breathe. Like if you're a pretty healthy individual, you can still move air in and out. 
Uh, it does allow the patient to be able to talk and move air over the vocal cords depending on where the trachea was placed. Uh, obviously, if the vocal cords are not really being engaged, the trachea is too low or whatever, then you're not going to be able to really get any sound. And they might have to use like electronic, I can't remember what it's called, but like electronic device. You've heard people like put something up against their neck and <laughs> it sounds like a robot, but it... <laughs> like that smoking commercial way yeah, back when. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I might everyone age knows us, that one. I'll right? age us there. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. Yeah, that was, so the, there's that option. Um, but obviously the patient is not doing really well. They can't breathe particularly good. Maybe the trachea, uh, trachea is not strong, and so you can trial the passive valve, and but if they get short of breath, dyspneic, etc., then you can't keep them on the passive valve. You have to take it out, uh, take it off anyway. It just attaches. It's not really something that goes in. But in any case, <laughs> um, patients can fail that, and if they can't, handle that they might have to do something different um but something that you can kind of work towards um i don't know it's, it's a lot of things i don't really know i still think i still think i don't quite know and obviously i need to read up on more because um, sometimes there's notions uh there's at least thought processes that if you don't pass some of these things like maybe you are uh, dysphagic uh maybe you aren't able to tolerate the passive valve about desaturations that you will never be able to actually get the passive valve so i'm not really quite clear on how the progression works if it is a progression or at some point it should be either you do it or you don't and if you don't then you're most likely to be lifelong trach um, which is kind of sad but things that we have to kind of consider and obviously when you are advising a patient regarding this this is things that you should include in the conversation. I think everyone likes to be the internal optimist. Um, and I understand that we always want the best for our patients. We want the best outcomes. And sometimes we do need to be realistic about, um, not maybe not realistic, but at least like explain the, all the possible things that can go wrong and all the possible things that can happen. That way the family isn't later on getting mad at you because this is not the outcome that they were anticipating. They were promised that this would be a temporary fix. And then now it doesn't seem to be temporary. It seems to be, uh, yeah. Anyway, you, it, these are the things that you should have nice conversations about. It's tarf, tough, um, but it's, I think, benef in the long run, beneficial. But a lot of things in medicine, we are able to, people kind of come in, do something, and then they, they disappear from the, the patient care team afterwards so it's sometimes hard to uh, have that continuity yeah well and too it's hard knowing what actually was said and what the family actually registered yeah, because as much as we want to be the internal optimist the family members tend to be also be the internal optimist as well yeah and so and too like they're in a situation where they're getting a lot of information dumped on them and they may not necessarily may not have the medical literacy all of it yeah. yeah and they may have have the medical literacy to really uh, comprehend some of what we're telling and it's one of those talents that I think you kind of try to learn like it's I think we talked about this weeks and weeks ago where it's like talking to the patient you have to have your talking to patients 
vocabulary, but at the same time, we're trying to talk like doctors. So that when we present to our attendings, we don't use stupid words like very red, angry <laughs> uh, skin or something like that. Like you have to actually talk like a doctor, but then you also have to know how to when, how and when to talk like um, a layman, an a everyday lay, person, <laughs> a lay person, because oftentimes patients are going to glaze over when they hear certain terms. Um, and I mean, we, we use the term very frequently, like pleural effusion, pleural effusion, and you hear pleural edema, pulmonary embolism, and all these things like uh, pneumonia, uh, empyema, and all these different terms. And it's, I think, very difficult for patients to really suss out. Like patients generally know what pneumonia is. Uh, I think they will probably, it was some th- thought, they can probably figure out what a pulmonary embolism is. But like pulmonary effusion versus, I say pleural effusion versus pulmonary edema, uh, it's it's difficult for them, I think, to really understand all that um, and not conflate some of them with other things. And so it's, it's, a, it's a talent. Uh, I haven't quite mastered it, but obviously it's something you kind of try to figure out how to deal with as you go through your medical careers, how to explain what's going on to the patient. And sometimes I like to practice, and uh, this sounds maybe dumb, but oftentimes when we're doing stuff in the room with the patients uh, and the family members are there, uh, oftentimes we can just kind of be very focused on what we're doing. Like I think today we were doing, we were checking for windows. Um, we were checking for windows that we could possibly do with thoracentesis on a patient. And then we decided we wanted to go ahead and look at the heart real quick to see how the IVC was and the patient was dehydrated or not. And we were very focused on doing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the ultrasound. Uh, my co-resident's trying to talk me through how to do some of it. Um, and at some point I realized like, oh, the patient's daughter is here. I should probably explain what we're doing because she's just standing there and like we just have a probe. We're looking at this black and white screen that you know, as she probably knows is an ultrasound, but like most people only think of ultrasounds as you see a baby or you don't see a baby. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, we're not looking for a baby in this elder person. So um, you take this minute to kind of go, okay, so this is what we're doing. And you don't always have to explain what you see on the screen because like honestly, I'm relatively new at the ultrasound. I don't always know what I'm seeing on the screen. It took me a long longer than it probably should have to figure out where to find the heart uh, when they, so the co-resident was like, okay, let's look, look at the heart, get the four chamber view. And I'm just like, I think I know where I need to go. And he did tell me like sub xiphoid as a xiphoid process. I'm like, okay. And I was pointing it towards the left side of the chest, which is like where I would expect the heart to be. And we were looking, looking. He, in fact, I finally after like a minute of me looking around, he was like, "So you see right here, this is the the pleural fusion that you're seeing. So that's in the left lung. You need to angle it more midline, a little bit towards the right from where you're at." And so I was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> not what I expected, but that's okay." Um, but and oh. then you know, once I had it in the right direction, it was like, "Oh, that's the four chamber view of the heart." And then he was like, okay, now turn it 90 degrees, which I did very quickly. And he was like, no, <laughs> do it slowly so that we can actually try to see where the IVC is. And then we, we will freeze it and measure. 
because uh, you're looking for different sizes that the IVC is dilated versus collapsed, etc. So it was it was a learning experience. I never I haven't had really much practice, and so it was always good to practice. And but at the same time, you have the patient's daughter there, and she doesn't know why you're looking at their heart, why you're looking at their lungs, and so you, sometimes it takes you a minute to go, okay, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're looking at. Um, we just want to get a good idea if we were going to do a thoracentesis, if there was actually good areas that we can go into. Also, we want to make sure the flow of fusion is not loculated, which basically means there's no sep there's no septations in within the flow of fusions uh, that will make it very difficult to be able to pull fluid off. Um, oftentimes, I think if you have a lot of septations, uh, you have to break those up if you were if you need to get the fluid off to help the respiratory status. And you have the loculation. Sometimes you can go through them. I think if you have good windows, you might be able to do that. Um, IR sometimes is better doing that than just some pulmonary person. But additionally, uh, cardiothoracic surgery is kind of your go-to with thoracotomies, um, cutting open the patient's chest and going in and breaking up the loculations and then closing everything back up. So CT surgery uh, being <laughs> could be your go-to people. For those sort of things and in any case um the the point being is that it took a few minutes to talk to the, the patient's daughter and make sure that they were knew what we were doing and that's good practice uh the more you do it it's like a muscle the more you do it the easier it's going to be and yeah and sometimes it's nice as a as a patient um granted i've all, normally only been a patient when giving birth but <clears throat> it's always nice when they actually tell you it's what's going on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead of just having do a, do a bunch of stuff <laughs> doing a bunch of stuff so like uh, for example with our our middle like they lost the heartbeat and they told me they lost the heartbeat but it was like 10 people all like converged on the room at once and then they put oxygen on and all the stuff and I'm just sitting there not knowing what's happening. Things and it, are happening very <laughs> things, quickly. Things are happening very quickly and I have no idea why and that's terrifying. <laughs> I don't know if knowing <clears throat> the answer is less or more terrifying. Well, no, but... I mean, there's obviously times when you need to get stuff done quickly and there are some times when you could, could take, a <clears throat> take a moment and bring everybody up to speed. Yeah, but I mean... In that instance, there was like four people standing there that weren't doing anything, and I feel like at that they point, may not have known. Being one, <laughs> having been one of the people in the in the corner of the Fair. room looking and going, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm here to learn. <laughs> Fair. Fair. But um yeah, once they started messing with my foot and trying to get it back in the stirrup, I was just like, okay, there's nothing. Everything is fine. If they're putting that much effort into something stupid <laughs> it's fine fair enough <laughs> but there are sometimes as a as a patient where it would be nice if someone was just like okay this is what's happening this is what we are doing yeah the other i guess the other thing maybe worth talking about um so i, I had a chance to chat with one of the people from my program that uh, he's a, he's a third year he is matching in the cardiology fellowship um and so I had a chance to finally meet up with him and try to figure out like, kind of a part one because <laughs> he got really busy and uh, essentially the, he got a few, a few patients needed his immediate attention. Uh, I tried to help him out as best as I could, which was very, very little. He just was like, I'm not sure what the octreotide dosing is. 
And so I looked it up for him real quick and it was like, it's 50 micrograms bolus and then 50 micrograms per hour uh, for two to five days. And he's like, okay, thanks. I, my, my, my contribution was about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he was he got really busy. But in any case, I was asking him what any suggestions. Obviously, someone who has recently matched in the cardiology fellowship is kind of fresh out of that cycle, fresh out of that process, um, might have a little bit of perspective on what would make you a good competitive applicant. Like, obviously, he, whatever he's done, he's done things correctly. Um, so I don't know. Obviously, you don't want to emulate someone 100% because uh, maybe they just barely squeaked through and you don't want to be the next person barely squeaking through. But at the same time, listen to a lot of advice and a lot of different suggestions and kind of figure out if they all make sense, if they all kind of align with each other and then kind of go with it. But he, he had really good advice uh, in general. I, in part one, I didn't really get the full question, but he asked, we talked a little bit about research because he was pretty prolific with research. And so he uh, gave me some kind of advice. He essentially said there was about a thousand people who applied into cardiology the last year. And each program essentially interviewed uh, 30 people per uh, total. So like if they had three slots, they basically interviewed 10 people per slot, um, which is not very much. Uh, mm -hmm. When you consider like residency applications, they, we interview hundreds, if not maybe a thousand people before making a rank list. So <laughs> yeah, because didn't you say your program had already like the first day that applications dropped, they had already like had about a thousand to fourteen hundred that they yeah. were looking at. Yeah, so they they already got a whole bunch of applicants. Um, they obviously they weren't going to interview all of them, but I think yes, that's essentially the point is that you're going to get a whole bunch of applicants, and programs are going to only interview so much, and generally everyone is about the same. So like, there's nothing you can do about your board scores. They're basically set. Like most people do step three in their intern year. Obviously, step one and two are already done. You can't change what medical school you went to, and you can't change what residency you went to. Um, I mean, you can, but those are like weird, difficult pathways. <laughs> so essentially, you're, you're stuck where you're at. So everyone is kind of in the same boat. They can't, nobody can change their board scores. Nobody can change residency, etc. Um, so research is one way to differentiate yourself uh doing some research he was he's a, this is a, maybe a difficult one because like he's pretty prolific i think the rumor is that he does he's done about 25 percent of all research done at cape fear in the last couple years so he is very prolific with his research um something to the tune of uh 50 research um publications uh, that includes a lot of case reports obviously and some other stuff that he's worked on uh, his general advice was he thought maybe he went a little overkill on the case reports um, that maybe having less case reports might be better uh, at least his reports are generally seen as the low-hanging fruit the easiest way to get publication um, as opposed to like a meta-analysis or an actual uh, research project where you mm -hmm. actually have to have control groups and IRBs uh, versus um, oh, what was the other one he talked about a QI or quality improvement projects and some, a lot of these things are kind of difficult to do um, 
you need time and you need kind of institutional backing and institutional help. So sometimes it's difficult to get some of this stuff done, Um, which makes me feel a little bit better that we do have a research group and we are working on a research project. Uh, It does kind of reaffirm that uh, during during that um, those meetings we've been talking about research that they want to kind of keep the group small because he did say like, well, you're not like the primary author. You're not, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So if you're like the third or fifth person on the list, people might not even care. Um, <laughs> so um, it's good to try to be more aggressive and be a, play a bigger role in the research project, like more writing or whatever. That way you can be one of the primary authors. Uh, maybe not the first one, but maybe the second or third. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, a lot of this stuff does require a lot of, I think, institutional help. I, I think I can't really, knowing how busy I am right now, I'm not really sure how anyone is able to complete an actual research, like, hey, we're going to test this and see this. Like, you're probably better off doing a meta-analysis, taking, like, multiple case reports or, like, doing a case series, uh, probably more like taking lots of case reports and then trying to figure out a statement or some sort of hypothesis based off of that. And I'm dumbing it down because I'm not even sure how I would go about it. <laughs> um, so research uh, was one of the things he kind of talked about. Um, doing, he, he thought maybe like 10 to 20 by the time you are applying. So that's quite a few. Uh, I think I have one done um in my my intern year i have two other case report uh case reports i'm kind of working on i just need to spend more time working on them uh and then don't you have one that um you might do that you got last week uh, that's one of my two oh okay so i have the one i'm the cure symposium um and then i have another one i got from noel and i had one uh, that is a um, pleural uh, pancreatic fistula, which is interesting. Uh, so I just need to finish the write-up on it, work on the write-up, and then I have another resident I'm working with on, so we'll try to get that written up and done. Uh, I will try to <laughs> get more re- It's tough because I want to do cardiology, and so far none of my case reports are cardiology in nature. Um, so that is what it is. But he did recommend in Epic as a way to create your own different list off to the side. He said it might be good to create like a, a list of research. And then when you've run across an interesting patient, just drag and drop them into there. And then when you have a chance, get the consent from the patient. And then write, you know, when you have a moment, go ahead and write the case report. When you're like, because he, he said he has like dozens of people in that list and he hasn't written them all up. He just... When he has a moment, oh, maybe I'll write a case report on this patient. And then he would spend some time doing it. And so it's kind of a, a nice way to do it. It's a little bit, I feel like you would have to have like a, a couple of days off, one day off and just like spend a, a lot of hours. But he did also talk, he showed me, uh, there's a cardiology journal and it's apparently, I think it's like J, it's like Jack journal or something like that. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the acronym is, but it's apparently a pretty well-known cardiology journal and they do take submissions and they're 
Like, I think they said it was like they're like twelve hundred characters. Oh. So not, not they a whole are lot. not very long and not very big. So you don't really have to go crazy on your KC ports in those cases. So um, other suggestions were try to do like an ACC, American College of Cardiology. Try to submit cases to them. Like if you, this is again, this is a lot of recommendations towards cardiology. So if you're thinking palm crit and other things, obviously find find the uh, governing bodies or bodies that uh, do conferences for those entities. But um, try to see when their conferences are. Grab a few patients and save your case reports. Your best, like basically, like if I have a good cardiology case report. Like, write it up, but wait to submit it to the conference. Like, if that's your best one, submit it to the conference. Hold off on publishing it because you can't kind of publish the same thing multiple times. You got to, you know, write it up, publish, write it up, publish. And you can't just send it to three different publications and have three different, (laughs) uh, in any case. So, um, that was one suggestion as well as like trying to get into the ACC conferences that way that's a good way to like present and have that it's something that i think it looks good it's a good networking opportunity as well um and then i guess the last thing he talked about today uh was reputation um especially if you have a cardiology fellowship attached to your program uh not, that's tough to say not attached to your program at your hospital essentially like we have a cardiology fellowship um, at the hospital, also like you know Cape Fear Valley Health with, I think it's through Campbell, whatever. Um, that's all changing in the next few years anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, we have a, a Cape Fear Valley Fellowship for cardiology, uh, as well as I think we're getting a pulmonology fellowship. We have a few other ones, but um, reputations go a long way. Uh, he made a point to say that just as much as the residents talk about the attendings and spend time spilling the tea as it were in the as a south southerners say um we the attendings apparently also talk about us and you know they they will gossip about us we talk about them and so if you get a reputation that is not flattering uh, sometimes it's really hard to overcome that so Something to keep in mind <laughs> if you are difficult to work with or you uh, are more abrasive with your attendings, they talk to the programs. Um, so there's like a few people, there's a few people like, are known to be like kind of decision makers for the cardiology fellowship selection. And so if you make it difficult for your attendings, the attendings will let them know and then you may not get a spot. So, so that's not saying like you can't match elsewhere. You can totally match at a different cardiology fellowship somewhere else. But um, if you have one in-house, you know, in-house that sometimes it becomes a little bit easier to get in the in-house one because they know you. It's uh, you don't have to learn the system. There's, there's a lot of favorability for like, at least a lot of programs I've heard of will take at least one from in-house. So something to keep in mind. Um if your attendings are watching you and gossip and chat, chatting about you, and if they, they find out that you're applying to a fellowship, they can help you. They can put in a good word and kind of push you over that finish line, or they could cripple your chances. So, 
Yeah. Well, and that's something that was said to us in third year when we had yeah, that Yeah, we had that meeting. get together just before third year. Yeah, is that <laughs> the medical field is small <laughs> and your reputation will follow you wherever you go. So <clears throat> make sure it's a good one. And that starts in residency. So It starts in medical school. but It starts in medical school, but I... It really... Medical school, it starts to a lower extent. Like you can destroy a medical career in medical school before it gets going if you just do a lot of terrible things and people will know about it. Um, but I think a lot of times you're given a pass. You're a med student. You don't know any better. But when you're a resident, you're a doctor, and you should know better. <laughs> and even if you're an intern, like they, they treat you different. You have the MD behind your name now, so you should know better. And again, even if you're an intern, they consider, like, if it's your first couple of weeks on floors and you're having a rough go of it and you start snapping at people and your senior or your, your attending goes, oh, this guy's difficult, he's not good on the pressure, they, they form this very long view of what who you are as a resident that might follow you for the entirety of your residency. Um, so something to keep in mind. I think it's hard um, because it's it's you are stressed early on in turn year. I am happy that at least a couple of my attendings told me that um, they never thought that I looked overwhelmed. Which I mean, that's a pretty low bar uh, in in on the floors. Is <laughs> to, like not that I looked comp confident or competent or anything like that. It's just that I didn't look overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, which you're like, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that over. You look like you're at, you're having a terrible time or you look like you're struggling. And I know a few of the attendings have, I've heard kind of them talking to the other team. So like sometimes they don't just talk to each other. They will like our attendings will float between teams depending on the week. And so sometimes I've heard them talk about how, oh, these residents on two South, whatever, they don't know anything about their patients. And like you don't want that reputation. Uh, I think one of the one of the attendings told us that she tends to hold, uh, she tends to uh, allow the residents to have a chance. You know, like I'll I'll meet them like the first time, and maybe they're having a hard time, and like after maybe a week or two, if they're not really figuring it out, that's when I start to worry about them. And so it's like that's good to know. That's good to know that you basically like you're gonna give people a pass for a little bit, but like. And then that, that doesn't just stop at intern year. She talked. She was mentioning second and third years that she has her eye on. And she's concerned about. She didn't mention them by name, but she just said, you know, there's certain ones that you know you. you they're going to be around. the senior. They're going to be the senior resident, and I'm concerned. <laughs> Is she the same one that was talking about how she's around more when the, those are yeah. the residents on her team? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's that. I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble by talking. I, I really do like. <laughs> I, I really do like this attendee. I, I think we, I, we ran into her because she was talking to a team, and she's very relatable because she's uh, she has like younger kids, um, and they call her all the time and <laughs> harass her to try to get like more screen time and stuff like that. And it's just hilarious. Like they, they just drive her insane. 
and she's like trying her best, but like they're blowing up her phone. It's like, no, I'm not giving you anything more. Did you do your homework? No, then do your homework and <laughs> <laughs> stop calling me. <laughs> no. She's very relatable, and I, I really do appreciate when I work with her. Um, but I mean, it's tough but fair, I think, is the, the word I would use. Uh, I think my first time I, mm-hmm. I worked with her, she said, uh, I started trying to present a patient and she just stopped me and she was like, this is your first day? I was like, yes. And it's like, okay. Well, we're going to do a brief overview of the patient because I, I, I already know them. Next week, you'll do better. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's a good start for my one, my one of my six patients today. Is that when you were on 8 South? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. That was one of your first or second, third? It was my second or third rotation. Yeah. And I found out that I, so I've done five weeks on the step down. I am going to do another two in, <laughs> in a month. So after I get done in my poem and do my continuity clinic, I'll do another two on 8 South. So. 8 South <laughs> loves them apparently. apparently I'm, I, I need, I'm, we were thinking. I'm destined to be in the step down unit. <laughs> It's all right. Pros um, and cons. Pros and cons, right? Um, but anyway, that, that that was essentially a lot of. I mean, again, part one. I, I have other questions about uh, away rotations. If that's beneficial, how how much should I really try to find that out? Because again, I think that kind of flows out of the reputation. If you can develop a good reputation, uh, that can carry you a long way. That can kind of get you maybe past the applicant start, you know, like, oh, I look at an application. Does this stand out to me? Do I even want to look at this person? Do I even want to interview this person? Like being, uh, that's my thought process. I'm going to chat more about, I'm going to chat with this resident later about it. But like, will that take you, like get you past (laughs) just another name on an application and maybe for for sure get an interview? Because like interview, especially again, if you're competing one out of 10 for one spot. Like, I mean, it's not the best of odds, but like, that's pretty good odds. Um, so it's nice to, you know, one, I, I have to beat out nine people to get a, a spot and chances are the nine of the people are going to have like three or four or five, six other interviews at other programs. And so like the way the match system will shake out, well, hopefully all of us will find a spot somewhere. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think we want to know is kind of like about how many programs do you apply to? Because the pool of programs for... It's not as big as... It's not as big. It's not as big as the internal medicine, but it may... Again, it could be very different. It can't... Like, when you apply for residency, you kind of... Definitely the U.S. MDs who can, like, drop maybe 50 applications and or even less and be like, yeah, I'll get like 10 applications, uh, 10 interviews and I'll have no problem. Um, whereas like a lot of the SINGs, I dropped uh, 177 uh, applications out there. Uh, I got my 10 interviews. So like it's very different. Um, uh, now when you go to fellowship, is it that is that the same thing? Are you just trying to get like three interviews? Are you trying to get like 10? Obviously, the more interviews means probably the better chances you have to pick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if something, you must have done something right that people want to 
uh, take you on. Um, that want they want to at least interview you and t- uh, talk to you some more. So that's always good. So I, I'm sure more interviews is never bad, but at the same time, it's like does applying to all fifty. I know you know how many programs there are, but like let's say there's fifty programs in this in the country. Does it benefit you to apply to all fifty, or is it realistic like programs are going to look at you and go? You don't have any real attachment to the area or uh, like what are they using to really weed out their applicants? So like where should should I avoid just shotgunning applications everywhere or should I be very selective? A lot of questions there. Um, and again, someone who's gone through the match process hopefully can shed a little bit more light because, uh, again, fellowship match is a little bit different. And I think he said that the applications go out in July. So you start your fellowship match process in July. So basically, as I start third year, I will need to have my application started and going right off the bat. And then you'll find out, like they've already they've already found out where they match. Yeah, they find they find out. I think November or early December. So you have, if you're moving, you've got six months or so mm-hmm. before to figure all that out, which is nice. And I mean that six months to figure out where to move to, um, what you're going to do, how you're going to move. And then also the program requires you to sit for your boards, how you're going to study for your boards. Uh, so a lot of things to kind of work out. Um, and then of course I, I need to kind of understand a little bit more about the structure of a fellowship, obviously like internal medicine, we have a lot of floors, we have some nights, we have ICU, we got our electives, like there's a lot of different things you're doing um, that, uh, and many residencies will have like, oh, you do a week of floors, uh, you do, like you have your core, like if you're general surgery, like you have your core general surgery time, but you might do some other, like ED, you might get some exposure across different specialties to get a better, more rounded education in your intern year and then like as you go further and further along it's basically general surgery general surgery general surgery uh, <laughs> and maybe some of the subspecialties I'm, I'm not really 100% sure but maybe like plastics and other things like that you could probably focus on not being very familiar with general surgery I'm kind of stepping outside of my comfort zone there <laughs> um, but I wanted to try to do something other than total medicine for a second but um, yeah I think it's hard to do a lot of that um but in fellowship like obviously you're in cardiology so maybe you'll do like an interventional you'll do uh, ep heart failure clinic um i'm sure there's different flavors of fellowship but it's like is it all just cardiac <laughs> you're in cardiac specialty so i would imagine it's all heart stuff you're not going to be like and we're going to spend a week in poem uh, <laughs> But then again, I have heard that, you know, they will cover uh, like a SICU, a cardiac intensive care unit. So, uh, I mean, are you covering it in total or are you just covering in as far as the cardiac needs of that unit? Um, so questions I have, I need to figure out the answers to. Some of this is more of like educational, like obviously if they say, oh no, you are covering the SICU. Uh, during that rotation, you are covering all of the needs of the SICU. That, that means you are going to you know, lean on a lot of your internal medicine knowledge and not just forget about it all. And that's not going to make or break it. It's not going to be like, no, I'm not going to do cardiology anymore. I can't, <laughs> I can't stand 
four weeks or a month or two months of <laughs> sick you anymore. I'm done. Um, uh, and, I, and I'm so like, I'm, I'm a six month in seven month in intern. So I, I, I yeah. have a long way to go before I can a long be a way fellow. to go. And then to each fellowship program, I mean, they're all teaching you pretty much the same, but how they teach might be different and what is expected of you might be different. So just like with residencies, right? So anyways, we are getting late, late. And, um, I still have a shift tomorrow. We got to pick up someone from the airport. So we have a busy day, so we (laughs) should probably wrap it up. Uh, so if you are, haven't subscribed to us, you can subscribe to us on all the major platforms podcasting platforms if you have any questions go ahead and message karen at medfamilymd at on instagram uh, medfamilymd on instagram that's what i meant to say yep. um yeah and otherwise we will try to talk to you guys next week bye bye